Hello, all you beautiful book people. Welcome to another episode of Tea and Tropes. I am your host, Bree, and if you're new here, welcome to the show. Every month we pick a new fantasy book, and over the weeks we dissect it and analyze it and talk about it. And today is going to be really fun because we are getting to the end of our October pick, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. I also have another author interview for you guys. But before we jump into all of that, I just want to take a moment to thank you guys for hanging out with me for this first month. And I can't tell you guys how much it's meant to me that you all are here and the entire Bookstagram and Book Talk community that has been so supportive since day one. I am just overwhelmed with all the love and positivity that you guys have sent my way. And I am just so thankful for all of you. And I'm really looking forward to all the books that we read together in the future and all the authors that I get to talk to. I was hanging out with my sister and her fiance, and we were just shopping at Target. And I was telling them about the podcast, and they were asking me a bunch of questions a random person actually overheard us having this conversation and pulled me aside and asked me like where she could listen and she was going to share it with her daughter and she was like so interested and so excited and that just made my day it was so special to have that experience and have someone that was interested and I can't even tell you how much it warmed my heart that that had happened So if that was you, I really hope that you're enjoying what you hear so far. And I just want everybody, all of you guys to know that you being here and you listening with along with me is such a big gesture that I definitely am not taking for granted. So thank you. Also, since this is the last week of book club for October, Make sure you hang out till the end. We're going to announce next month's book pick. So if you want to continue reading along with me, um, you can check out what book we're going to be picking up for the month of November. So I'm really looking forward to this. Let's get into it. have another black tea for you guys today from Desert Mystic Goods that I had found at the Arizona Witchcrafted Market a few weeks back. And today it is the Sisters Tea, which is a black tea blend with cinnamon and sage. And it smells amazing. It smells magical. And it definitely is getting me in the spooky vibes for Halloween coming up here. So definitely check them out. I definitely want to get some more flavors from them, but this was a really good one to start with. It is vegan and cruelty-free, and you can get it on their website at desertmysticgoods.com. And I'm not going to talk anymore. We're going to jump right into Chapter 31 of Fourth Wing because these last 
nine chapters is just amazing. I am so excited to discuss this. But we're going to start with chapter 31, where Zayden comes to Violet's room and they discuss the destruction that their meeting from the night before had caused to her furniture. But it's in this conversation that Zayden tells Violet where he had been the night that she had ran into him in the middle of the night in the courtyard. And he tells her that he was in Athbin, which is near Eurasia. And Eurasia is in the trader area and is where Zayden is from, actually. So I found that really interesting that Zayden was at a post that was literally next door to his hometown. And while I have a million questions, our little Violet is so trusting of Zayden that she just lets it go. I definitely wouldn't if I was in her position, but that's just me. She loves him. It's fine. (laughs) But we also find a note from her dad inside the Book of Fables that Mira had given to her. And the note talks about how folklore is about their past. And it mentions that when the time comes, he trusts that she'll make the right choice. But I think a lot of the information we're going to get from this is in the exact wording. So I'm going to read you the note real quick. It says, My Violet, by the time you find this, you'll most likely be in the scribe quadrant. Remember that folklore is passed from one generation to the next to teach us about our past. If we lose it, we lose the links to our past. It only takes one desperate generation to change history, even erase it. I know you'll make the right choice when the time comes. You have always been the best of both your mother and me. Love, Dad. And I know I talk about foreshadowing a lot, specifically in the super early chapters of this book. But if this isn't foreshadowing, I don't know what is. I feel like Rebecca's intent with this was to kind of have the writer gloss over it because she immediately has Zayden and Violet both describe it as cryptic and say how her dad got cryptic after Brennan had died. And it just kind of dismisses the random intensity that I personally felt from reading this note. But what really solidifies the foreshadowing for me is that she immediately starts flipping through the stories and telling us the stories that are inside this book of fables. Those stories include a great war among three brothers. Um, They talk about the first dragon riders and how the bonds could turn on the rider if they try to consume too much power. They talked about a great evil and when men were corrupted by too much dark magic, they turn into venom, which we had talked about in a much earlier chapter. There's also stories about wyvern as well, which is a different species of dragon, again, mentioned in an earlier chapter. But what I found so interesting about this chapter, or not the chapter, but this paragraph in particular, is that she put dragons, venom, and wyvern all in one spot. They were all in this book of folk lore. And my brain immediately went to, well, if dragons are real, who's to say the others aren't? We've already kind of talked about 
them being mythical creatures, but why are dragons inside this book along with these creatures that supposedly don't exist? Zayden asked her, what do you think he was trying to tell you? And she says, I don't know. Every fable in the book is about how too much power corrupts. So maybe he felt that someone in leadership was corrupt. And then they just kind of make light of it. They make a joke about it. But who's to say this is the joke? I think this is the author trying to skew us away from what's coming up. And reading this got me really, really excited for the rest of the book. In this chapter, we also have Violet admit to herself that she's kind of falling for Zayden, which obviously we knew coming up, but she's finally admitting it to herself. And we also find out that graduation is coming up soon, which means that Zayden is going to be graduating and he's going to be moved to a different unit somewhere at an outpost and they don't know where he's going to be stationed at yet. And they're kind of discussing how that's going to affect them and the fact that their dragons have to be together. But graduation is also right near the six-year anniversary of her brother's death, of Brennan's death, which is also Zayden's father's death, the day of his execution. And what does Navarre do on this day? Well, they have a celebration, which normally would make sense, just the same way that, you know, in here in America, we celebrated D-Day and we celebrated the end of the wars. And so I, I get where the country of Navarre is coming from, the kingdom of Navarre of Navarre, excuse me. But for the children of the traitors, it's a celebration of their parents' executions. So as they go to the party, the only marked one at this party is Liam. Violet realizes this and tells Liam that he shouldn't have to be here. None of the other marked ones are here. Zayden's not there. And she really feels bad that he's sitting here having a celebration where the king is in attendance here. And they're celebrating this day where his parents had died. So he tells her that he's not there because he was ordered to. He was there because he wants to be there with her and for her and to support her. And one line that really stood out to me is when Violet is telling Liam to leave the party And he replies, when your greatest danger is approaching, I think not. And who is approaching Violet in this exact moment? The King of Navarre. I thought it was really interesting that Liam, at a party in front of hundreds of people, would just blatantly say this to Violet. That's not to say that other people had heard it or anything, but the fact that he is just so open about it with her. I understand why he would have reasons to not trust the king, to hate the king, but to be just so vocal about it in this specific area was just standing out to me in a very peculiar way. The king and her mother are asking about her bond with the dragons and how she's kind of connected to Zayden. And the king asks where Zayden is and says that he likes to have all the marked ones present at the party, which I think is just a slap in the face. 
It's kicking them while they're down. Like, dude, you already won. This is six years ago. Why do you have to keep shoving it in the faces of the children? It's not even the traders themselves. It's their children that have grown up in your kingdom, in your army. So I just, I found this to be very telling of the king's personality here. Violet protects Zayden by saying, oh no, he's here somewhere. He's just not one for parties. But I definitely saw him earlier today. And you know, stands up for him saying that he's the wing leader and she follows his command, which I thought was pretty brave to do that. One, to the king, and two, in front of her mother, where she is very boldly standing up for Zayden, who obviously the king has a lot of disdain for. After they walk away, here comes Zayden. (laughs) Um, And what does he do? He immediately touches her face again. He masks it behind a compliment of telling her how beautiful she looks today. And the entire time, all I could think about is, oh my God, he's freaking touching you again. He's cupping your face. And as we know, this is how he sees her memories. So again, I'm trying to rack my brain, like what memories is he getting from her right now? What is he seeing and what is he doing with that information? But alas, we're still not going to find out yet. Come on, Rebecca. We need to know. But um, anyway, she sneaks out of the party with Liam and she goes to go find Zayden, who is hanging out on the parapet. In chapter 32, Violet walks out onto the parapet. Um, in a dress this time, and she compares it to walking on Terrence's spine, which I thought was really interesting in the fact that the first time we see her get on the parapet, she's terrified, she's walking slowly, she's making sure she has all the proper equipment, even though she traded the boot, but now she's going out barefoot in a dress in the middle of the night, just to see Zayden and to comfort him, knowing that Zayden is currently depressed and upset about the anniversary of his father's death. It's here that Violet finally admits to Zayden that she has feelings for him, and he tells her that he has wanted her since the first time he saw her, and that when Dane had kissed her for the first time, it tore him apart, and they, you know go to his room, as young adult couples do. There's a moment after where they're talking about what Zayden would have done for her, specifically in the threshing, where she compares Dane to Zayden in the fact that Dane straight up said he would not have broken the rules to help her, even if it meant that it would cause her death. And Zayden says that he absolutely would have stepped in and he was just about to had Tar not stepped in himself. And with Violet making this specific comparison between the two men, we can see how her feelings for Zayden just make that much more sense, considering what she needs in her life, the support that she needs, and what she wants. This moment is soon interrupted by Garrick 
knocking on the door saying that they need to get dressed immediately, that they are under attack. In chapter 33, everyone is gathering on the flight field. Everyone's waiting to hear what's going on, what who's attacking. And we have this little moment with Rhiannon and Violet where Rhiannon notices that Violet is wearing Zayden's jacket because it has the three stars. It has the fourth wing um, shield on it. And so it's kind of obvious that she was with Zayden right before this happened. And then we find out that this isn't an actual attack. They are just more war games. And they say, hey, this is what would have happened once you guys graduate, once you're in an actual squad. This is a test to see how quickly you can be ready to go. The squads are going to be sent to um, actual outposts that are outside of the school, which is kind of mixed feelings because, yes, it's interesting, but at the same time, it's extremely dangerous knowing that Griffins have been attacking different outposts. Satan, as wing leader, is kind of collecting his own special ops team to go to Affbind, which, as we literally talked about just a few minutes ago, is right next to Erasia. Dane argues, saying that it's too dangerous, that's way too far, it's on the border, and that Violet shouldn't go with him, and that she should stay with him, and she'll be much safer if she goes with Dane as opposed to with Zayden. Obviously, Zayden pulls rank, <laughs> says that he's going to take her. Violet tries to calm him down by putting her hand on his chest, and is like, if you want me to go with you, I'm going to go with you. But this signals to... Dane, in front of everybody, that there are some feelings here between these two. And he calls it out, again, in front of their entire squad. So it was kind of an awkward moment. But what I kind of question here is, doesn't he already know? He touched her face after they had made out the first night. Um, He's touched her since they've made love together. So doesn't he already know? So is this an act or did he just not realize how important those feelings were to Violet? Or does he not know? Was he just touching her face and not reading her memories? I don't know. I can't trust any time he touched her. I just automatically assume that he's been reading her mind this entire time. Let me know what you guys think about that. But going into chapter four, we have Zayden and his squad that he assembled and they're flying. They take a break. um, And as they are resting and their dragons are resting, Violet kind of starts to worry about this final war game and this final test saying that 10% of the writers die here before they even get to their next year before they even graduate. But Zayden kind of calms her down by actually showing physical affection to her in the form of holding her hand and, you know, comforting her in front of the squad. And he says that he really doesn't care that they know and that they're not going to say anything. They're not, they're not going to do anything. And that he trusts all the people that are here. Everything seems really nice and calm for once until... Griffin writers arrive 
And when Violet tries to attack them, Zayden stops her. And he tells her that she needs to trust him before he reveals that he knew they were coming and that he was waiting for them. Now, chapter 35 is huge. Absolutely massive notes that I took. There are so many notes here. But my first one is the chapter head, which previously I realized I was kind of ignoring those a little bit. But this one really stood out to me right now because it talked about Fen Ryerson, who is Zayden's dad, accused the king of, quote, a conspiracy so vast, so unspeakable that they won't even repeat it now. And I desperately need to know what this conspiracy was. What did Fen Ryerson accuse the king of that caused his execution? Because what we know of Fen Ryerson so far is that he was the traitor. But there's a conspiracy here. I want to know what it is and where the truth is in that conspiracy. Because I believe all conspiracy has at least a sliver of truth, if not more. Unfortunately, we're not going to know that right now as much as I really, really want to. But moving on into the chapter, we find out that Zayden has been bringing shipments to the Griffin Riders. And we learned that Venon had attacked the village. And yes, Venon are real. Um, Violet is having a hard time grasping this information. She just found out that the man she loves has been lying to her and hiding secrets from her and has been working with the Griffins, aka their enemies, this entire time. So obviously she feels extremely betrayed. The Griffin writers tell them that they came here as a warning to tell Zayden that the Venon are heading towards the outpost in Aspine, which is exactly where Zayden's squad is supposed to be heading for the war games. Violet then realizes that everybody in the squad besides her are marked ones. And that in the confusion of the war game starting, Zayden was able to have an entire squad of like six marked ones, even though the law states that no more than three should be together at any given time. And they are Zayden's closest confidants. They are his cousins, his adopted brother, his best friend. They're the people that he has had closest to him this entire time. So Violet puts it together that they all know, and they're all in on this together. And then it hits her that her dragons know too. Both Tarn and Andarna have been lying to her as well and keeping it a secret from her, even though they knew exactly what was going on. How would you handle that in that situation? Like, you are bonded to these creatures that literally their life force is connected to you. And you find that they've been lying to you, or at least not lying, but keeping secrets from you. Do you trust that they had the best interest in that? Or are you now not trusting them anymore either? It's such a hard thing to think about that, this thing that literally keeps you alive and has been keeping you alive this whole time, you don't know if you can trust them. 
Obviously, Violet is upset about this, and in trying to calm down her anger, Zayden says, Did you ever once stop to think that sometimes you can start out on the right side of a war and end up on the wrong one? And this immediately made me think of her father's note. And not just the note, but also the dream that she had had where he was telling her to be mindful of where you're getting information from. And if we think about it that way, all of these people around Violet are telling her that she is on the wrong side. Which means that Navarre is the wrong side. What Zayden tells her is that the Venon are trying to find the material that powers the wards that surround Navarre. And that that material and that the wards stop any non-dragon magic from working inside the country. And here's my question here. Do all dragons know about the Venon? I know that all the dragons here know um, Tarnan and Darna, Sagal, all the other squad members. But do all dragons know? Is this something that the dragons are keeping from their writers? And if that's the case, wouldn't the dragons want to stop the Venon as well? The Venon are a direct threat to the dragon's safety and to the wards that the dragons are protecting. So why wouldn't they want to stop the Venon from what they're doing, from finding this material that'll break the wards. Zayden also shows her a dagger that is supposedly made from this material. And Violet recognizes it because it was in her mother's office from the last war games where they had broken in and stolen the map. And he tells her that only weapons made from this specific material are able to kill the venom. Now, I I question that because we know that dragons can breathe fire. Dragons are massive. Dragons are so powerful. So I believe that Venom could walk away from dragon fire. Sure, we'll suspend disbelief for the sake of argument here for a second. But are you actually telling me that a dragon cannot just straight up bite a venom in half, and they're still going to live. Like, that just doesn't make sense that a dragon wouldn't be powerful enough to take on a venom. But obviously, we haven't seen these creatures. We don't know what they're capable of. I just think it's a little inconvenient that the only weapon that can kill them is a dagger that you have to be within melee range for. But to each their own. <laughs> Zayden tells her that the leadership of Navarre does know about the Venon. Her mother specifically knows about the Venon. That's why she has the dagger in her office. And that they're keeping a secret from the people. Zayden says that his dad was killed while he was trying to save people from the Venon. Um, which there's definitely a story there that I really want to know. How can the king turn that story into Ben Ryerson was a traitor when he was just trying to save people. So that would be a very, very interesting, at least like a novella or a prequel or something that I I could really jump into. But Violet says that she does believe him, but she can't trust him because he has 
hidden things from her and hidden secrets for so long that he's lost her trust. He gives her one of the daggers, um, and Violet realizes that there are no records of the venom anywhere. And she's trying to grapple with the fact that everybody in her life has lied to her leading up to this point. And she's thinking back to the archives. She's thinking back to all of the history books and everything saying that even like the oldest books that they have that span to 600 years ago, nothing mentions the venom being a physical, actual, real being. The only thing is that it's in this folklore book that her father had given her. And even that book is not in the archives, which houses every single book ever written, except for this one. So she realizes that she has a forbidden book that her dad has left for her with the note in it talking about how a desperate generation can erase history. The squad goes to the outpost, and when they get there, they find that it is completely empty, which is unusual because it is a major outpost. They find a note from Dane's father (laughs) that says that their mission is to survive if they can, which tells me that Dane definitely was reading Violet's memories, definitely knew what Zayden had told her, even though it wasn't a ton of information, he knew some of it. And so Colonel Atos is well aware of what he's doing here and what's going on. Now, if Dane knows about the Venom, I wouldn't go that far. I think that he's just kind of a pawn that the leadership is using, knowing that he's going to follow the rules. He's going to do as he's as he's told, with very little information guiding that. And despite how much I don't like Dane, (laughs) I can give the character the benefit of the doubt that he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks that Zayden and the Marked Ones are traitors. He thinks that they are trying to restart the rebellion that Zayden's father had previously tried. So I, I can get his motivation behind freely giving the information that he's stealing, but doesn't excuse his behavior. (laughs) In chapter 36, we get some more of the note that Colonel Atos has left for Zayden, and it says that this is essentially a chance for him to prove his loyalty. He can either save the village that is across the the border, the enemy territory, um, from the Venant that are coming to attack, which again, proves that they knew about the Venon being in this area. Um, Or he can save his position as squad leader and bring his squad back into Navarre. Violet, completely willing to fight this fight, even with the very limited knowledge that she has, she's still willing to do it, but she informs their squad about Wavern, or Wyvern, excuse me, And tells them the legend behind them, how the Venom created them, and that there are different species of dragons, um, but they still fly, they still breathe fire, etc. And they say that they had no idea what those were, but hopefully those are things of legend, which any, (laughs) any good 
books Luther can realize that this is 100% going to happen. This is our smoking gun here. As they're getting ready to fight, what else is going to come flying over the mountain than a giant two-legged dragon, otherwise known as a wyvern? And Violet asked Tarn if he knew the wyverns were real. And while he didn't know for sure, he tells her that he suspected they were. And it made me think about back when he had first got his saddle. He made that comment about how a fire blast to the chest would cause the saddle to fall off. And Violet made a joke about, well, the only other thing in the air are other dragons. And I don't know if you guys remember, but I had made a little bit of a talking point about what else is going to be here. What else is going to be in the air? Now we know that (laughs) wyverns have been here the entire time. (laughs) And Tarn was trying to prepare her for that. As the battle begins, we get so much information. We get a description of what the Venon look like, um, how they are kind of void of color, except for their red veins that are just stretching all over their skin. They wear purple robes. There's multiple waverns. We get the information that Dragonfire does nothing to them, which I kind of suspected anyway. We still don't have a dragon trying to just bite their head off to see if that works, but, you know, I digress. (laughs) Um... We find out that dragons can talk to griffins. So again, if they can talk, then would it all the dragons know? I don't know. Um, (laughs) And we start learning about how when Venom channel their power, they pull life and magic from the earth itself. So as the Venom is channeling, it's, is described as like a wave of death takes over everyone around them. Flowers start to die. Um, people who get caught in this wave instantly are killed. And the way it's described is losing color. And that reminded me of way, way back in chapter one when we're getting the description of Violet and how when she was born, it seemed that she was void of color. So I don't know if there's a connection here between Venom and Violet's silver hair. But it just seems a little too coincidental for it to not mean anything. I really want to know what you guys think about that. Do you think that there's a connection here? Or do you think that I'm overlooking into this? I'm overanalyzing it? Um, let me know. Because I think this was one of like my biggest like revelations where I was like, oh, wait. She has silver hair. Her hair has lost color. She was born with this disease. And here, this venom is sucking the life out of literally everything around them. As everyone kind of takes on their own battles, we have a really cool scene where Liam is a complete badass, just jumping off of his dragon and killing a wyvern, like, in midair. But... Unfortunately, a wyvern then attacks Day, who is Liam's dragon. And as we know, a rider without their dragon is dead. Out of all the on-page deaths that we have had throughout this book so far, 
this one kind of hit me the hardest. And it's only because we had the scene at the party where Liam endures the celebration for the sake of being with Violet. And that showed friendship to me. And so losing him here was a lot. Obviously, you know, Violet is crying. Zayden is there. Um, Liam just wants to be with Day. And it was it was written very emotionally, which I can really appreciate. And as we learned in the last episode, Violet's signet and her lightning are very connected to her emotions. So now feeling this grief of losing Liam, she decides that she must call upon her lightning to defeat the Venom and the Wyverns. She says that she kind of has to be more like her mom in this case and be more ruthless. And that brought me back to the note from her dad as well that said she needs to be the perfect mix between the both of them. Chapter 37, again, had a chapter head that really stood out to me this time. And it talked about the third brother who commanded the sky to surrender its greatest power who finally vanquished his jealous siblings at a great and terrible price. And I believe that the third brother, according to the folklore, is the one that became Venon, that created the Venon. But in this specific text, he's being compared to... Not compared, but he's being referenced as commanding the sky. And who else do we know that commands the sky if it's not for Violet herself? Which, again, kind of builds the bridge between a connection between Violet and the Venom. And as Violet fights a Venom, um, the Venom actually tells her that specifically, says that Violet could command the skies if she had learned how to use it. So the Venom directly comparing Violet to this brother that apparently is their creator way back when. Um, it's just a really interesting moment here that really stood out to me. But in this moment, Violet is also stabbed um, by the Venom. And she draws on her power she uses her lightning to stop the venom and and darna does help by stopping time a little bit and she violet i mean is willing to burn out in order to save the people and her squad mates chapter 38 starts with the sentence i think i might die today which is the exact opposite of what she's been telling herself since page one, where she would say, I will not die today. And this acceptance of her death at such a crucial moment where she is literally sacrificing herself in order to save numerous people shows a full arc of character development here especially for the reason that she's willing to die in order to save people who up until 
an hour ago, she thought was the enemy. This stab wound is believed to be poison. She has black blood. She's going in and out of consciousness. And at one point, she hears Zayden say that there is somewhere closer than going all the way back to Basgaeth to see Nolan specifically, which means that they're looking for a healer. Um, this somewhere closer... Garrick warns Zayden about taking her there. He says that it's risking too much. And Zayden says he doesn't care. He's going to save her and commands that they go there anyway. I do love in this chapter, though, there's a moment where Violet is talking about the irony of dying to poison when that is what she had used so much to get ahead in her challenges. And I just really love this moment where the character is fully aware of her own irony. That's just a little moment that I particularly enjoyed reading. Um, but the other important part of this chapter is when Zayden gets to wherever they're going, she is a little conscious at this moment, and she says that she recognizes a voice. She thinks it might be Bodhi, but she's not sure. So I'm thinking if she's not sure, it's not him. Chapter 39, the very last chapter of Fourth Wing, is no longer in Violet's POV. We are now in Zayden's point of view. And he is saying how she was asleep for three days. He has not been able to sleep waiting for her. Um... And he, he's just hoping that she's going to survive. She's going to wake up. But one thing that stood out is that he says, my bed. So wherever they are, he is established here. He has a room and a bed and essentially a home here. A place that he feels like he belongs. A place that he can call mine and that he feels safe enough to take her in her dying state. And if you remember, they were at the outpost that was next door to Zayden's hometown of Eurasia. As Violet wakes up, Zayden tells her that a few things have changed, and one of those things is that Andarna is, quote, huge now. He says that she grew immensely in only three days okay we need to break this down for a second though now i know that animals grow very quickly but andarna was expected to be fully grown in another two years when we had learned that she was a baby and that that's what feathertail meant and I'll concede that that was a few months prior as far as, like, story timeline goes. But there's no way that in three days she, I don't even know exactly how much larger she got, but to be called huge, there's no way that she grew that much in only three days. Okay, so here's my theory. I think that Andarna stopped time in order to save Violet's life. I think that she used as much power as she could to slow the poison that was affecting Violet before they could get her the proper help that she needed. I don't know. I know that's a little unhinged. There's not a lot of 
evidence supporting this except for the weird growth spurt that Andarna goes through. But let me know what you guys think because, I don't know, something just about this situation seems really off to me. We do find out that, yes, they are indeed in Aratia. Zayden reveals that he has kind of taken Aratia back and... As long as nobody is noticing that people are here, he's considering it his, and he's rebuilding. He gives Violet the carving that Liam had made of Andarna, which is bittersweet, but I think it's important for closure. We learn that Garrick is working on trying to figure out what this... um, metal box that he had found underneath the clock tower, which is where a lot of the Venom were searching, trying to find whatever it was that they were looking for. Um, And they're trying to figure out what it is because it, um, his dragon has the ability to sense runes and his dragon sense this box. And so this is a mystery that unfortunately we have to wait for book two to find out what this means as well. Zayden asks her if she's on their side And even though she says yes, she still steps out of his arms when he tries to hold her and still says that he can't, that, I'm sorry, that she can't trust him anymore. And even though it hurts, I mean, you kind of have to understand where she's coming from. But the biggest cliffhanger that Rebecca Yaros could have possibly left us with is... Violet's brother walking into the room and revealing that he's been alive this entire time working for the rebellion, or as he calls it, the revolution. And that is where the book ends. That's all the information we get for now. And I am just so excited for the next one to come out in only like two weeks here, November 7th. I'm going to definitely be picking that up. I'm going to definitely be reading it. I cannot wait to learn these secrets, to learn what happens next, to figure out all of the answers to my unhinged questions. (laughs) Um, But when the special edition comes out that has the additional chapter in it, I will be doing a breakdown of that on the Patreon. So if you're interested in reading along with that with me, go ahead and check out the Patreon. There's nothing on there now, but, um, you know, keep an eye. I'll post on Instagram when that's up as well. Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed this read. I loved the adventure. I loved the characters. I'm very excited to see where this is going to go. Let me know what you guys thought. And... You know, if you're excited to continue reading, if you're going to keep with the story, um, let me know your crazy theories, what you think of my crazy theories. And, you know, let's keep talking about this because it's going to stick with me for a little while, for sure. Now, before we announce November's book of the month, um, I do want to introduce you guys to an amazing person that I met at Salt Lake Fanics. Aaron N. Hall is the author of Foreordained, which is a fantasy series, and just released his second collection of short stories and poems, Love Letters to a House on Fire. So please give a wonderful tea and tropes welcome to Aaron. How are you? How are you doing today? Not too bad. Good. Um, So far, I've been recording audiobook files for Love Letters to a House on Fire. Um, 
yeah, but I've got plans this evening to watch Evil Dead 2 with a friend, so that'll be super fun. Um, how are you? What have you been up to? Good. Just, you know, working a lot, and <laughs> um, I'm doing Los Angeles Comic Con in December, so just, you know, prepping for that, trying to get all my oh, stuff that's together. Cool. That's amazing. So, Good for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for that, but it'll be a good time. Mm-hmm. But you're you're recording your own audiobooks? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's I I avoided recording audiobooks for so long just because it seemed like such a daunting task, but lots of people have told me, "Oh, you have such a nice voice. You should record audiobooks." So I um got the gear that I needed and figured I'm just going to take a shot at this, do it myself, see how it feels, and um my first audiobook is on its way to all major retailers right now, but uh I figured with the time that I have, I'll I'll record Love Letters to a House on Fire as well. So what got you into doing your own audiobooks? Did you just already have the equipment ready? Yeah, so I started a YouTube channel at the beginning of this year and I already had a really good camera because I used to do photography and I bought a voice recorder that works well with a lav mic that you can just, you know, put in your pocket and kind of clip your microphone by your neck, but it gives you really high quality sound. So I uh, I figured out this rig in my bedroom where I stuff this microphone in my closet among my clothes and then hang a blanket over the backside of me to deaden the sound around me. And I just use this uh, pro voice recorder to record my voice for the audiobooks. Then I import it into the computer and edit it and everything. That's awesome. I love seeing people record like in their closets because it's so funny. Like the photos <laughs> that you get from from those screen grabs, it's hilarious. But I love totally. that there's, that worked out for you. Yeah, I think there's a couple of pictures on my Instagram actually of me, like you know, sitting facing all my clothes with this like blanket draped over me, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's a chill rig, but it freaking works. So I'm just gonna stick with it. It does. I, I mean, I. Are you in your closet now? Because you sound fantastic to me. <laughs> no, I'm sitting at my desk. I have like an Xbox gaming headset on my head. So, okay. you know, you are getting like direct to the microphone. It's really, really close. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah. I'm like, Good. you don't I'm need glad. the expensive stuff. You sound fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's amazing of what you can get away with when it comes to recording an audiobook. I mean, you can get cheap USB microphones for like 50 bucks now that sound solid. And make a blanket fort over your head on your desk. Like you got a little studio, you can make that work. So, what else do you like to do in your spare time besides record your own audiobooks? Oh gosh, I feel like all of my spare time is devoted to writing. Um, I'm I'm an old man, you know. Like in my heart and soul, I like making a cup of hot cocoa and listening to a jazz record and reading a book. You know, that's that to me. That's like ah, perfect evening. Um, Sounds but, great. Yeah, I, <laughs> Yeah, but I also, I really love movies. I started off college as a film student, actually. Uh, So I really love watching movies and kind of just like digging into it a little bit and kind of figuring out why it works, why it doesn't from a storytelling standpoint. But that also translates to my writing. You know, it's just storytelling is what I can't get out of my mind at any given time. So yeah, it's it's hard to say, what do you do outside of writing? Because so much of who I am revolves around writing and storytelling. What are you reading right now? Currently, um, I'm reading this book on screenwriting. Um, I hit my my Goodreads quota for the year. Um, 
And I, I, there's like a couple of books that I've kind of been poking at a little bit. And um, this one has been on my currently reading list for honestly like a couple of years and I just haven't finished it. So I figured I'm just going to knock out this book. It's called Save the Cat, um, the only book you'll ever need on screenwriting. I meant to get the one about writing novels, but I accidentally ordered the screenwriting one. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe there's some knowledge I can glean from this anyway. That's so funny because I originally wanted to be a screenwriter when I was younger. Oh, cool. So I have read Save the Cat, um, and I do awesome. have the um, novel one now, and that's a fantastic book. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm going to be honest, it's hard for me to get into it just because I picked up the wrong book. I wasn't intending to read the one on screenwriting, but like I might eventually write a screenplay and maybe I'll keep this book around as a helpful reference. It could be a really great tool. A lot of it does translate mm -hmm. though, um, as far as like the story writing aspects. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you, you could still get some, some out of it, even though you have the wrong, for sure. excuse me, the wrong version, but, um, getting the. The novel one helped me a lot in my own personal um, writing. That's awesome. I mean, I, I definitely have noticed some um, some advice that maybe I don't agree with, but some that's helpful. I mean, I just got done reading this chapter on uh, characters, and the Blake Snyder, the author, was kind of explaining how don't write a script with a certain um, actor in mind. Just kind of write around a type of character, and you will find an actor who plays that. It's probably not going to be who you want, but um you will find someone so I, i've been kind of trying to wrap my head about wrap my head around how that would apply to writing a novel because i feel like on a novel you're not trying to cast anyone i mean the characters is who they are but uh, maybe there's more to be done about writing to a specific audience you know and not just writing to a general audience i don't know i get that i think a lot of times like authors might try to please everybody mm -hmm. but there's absolutely no way to right. do that so if you just write the book that like you would want to read yourself, you're going to find your yeah. audience. I would hope that's the case. I do feel like there are a handful of authors out there, though, who are very strategic with the way that they write their books. Like they have their certain audience in mind, whether it's, you know, juvenile or middle grade or whatever, and they write according to that. But I know Neil Gaiman, 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 Gaiman is, yeah, Gaiman. he's, he's I love awesome. Him. He's such a cool guy. Like he, I remember seeing something in an interview where he said, there is no audience. Like just write something that you would want to read. And people will love a good story. It's really not that deep. And I kind of love that, you know? Um, so I don't know. If there's anyone I'll take writing advice from, it would be him. Hands he's, down. <laughs> he's so sharp and he's got such a good soul. I mean, it, it, he's one of those celebrities where I would be devastated to find out that he was like, you know, he'd done. He had something. Yeah. A yeah. Scandal. <laughs> some scandal or anyway, but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen with him. At least I hope not. What have you been reading? Um, so for the podcast, I'm doing fourth oh, wing, cool. um, figured jump on that hype. The new one's coming out next yeah. month. So wanted to enjoy that with the rest of the world. Um, outside of the podcast, I'm currently doing the throne of glass series. Cause that one's very popular on TikTok oh, cool. as well. So I'm about halfway through there. Um, and then I have like a couple like smaller spooky reads. I'm trying to get through for October. Very cool kind of going through and then my my nephew is reading harry potter right now he just started the first one so he's been reading that to me every day for his like 20 minutes of reading uh -huh. time he'll call me and we'll read harry potter that, together that's freaking pure i'm loving that like he's having a hard time with everybody's names naturally because they're they all very unique names yeah. but 
otherwise, like, he's grasping the story really well. He's seen the movie, so he kind of knows what happens. But I'm like, no, there's a lot more in the book. Let's read the book. And, and the books <laughs> are such delicious reads anyway. It's just fun to do it. They are. Yeah. They're... Rereading it with him, I forgot, like, how the first chapter was laid mm-hmm. out. And just rereading that first chapter, like, it was so nostalgic. Like, so much came back to me. And I was like, man, the movie does not cover yeah. this in the sense that I felt when I first read I, it. I think the I think but. the movies are still pretty good. But, I mean, I, I even picked up Sorcerer's Stone as a grown-up. It was, like, after I had got home from my LDS mission, and I was, like, my early 20s, um, becoming a serious writer. And I uh, started reading it one one night and just sucks me in you know i'm like wow this book still kicks ass like this is really well written you know yeah even as an adult definitely yeah it's great i just went and saw the cursed child last year in toronto and oh it was fantastic the way that they imitate magic on stage literally blew my mind like at one point during the time turner scenes i was staring at like the walls to try to figure out how they made it look like time was like they they had like like a wobble effect. It was really really cool. But um, I was staring at walls trying to figure out how they were doing uh-huh. it. That's really cool. Because I was just so fascinated with like how they brought the magic to the stage. It was fantastic. Yeah, I, I know fans are kind of mixed on how they feel about the Cursed Child, but I picked up the book that you know it was basically just the script printed, and I really enjoyed it. I I mm-hmm. ate it up. I just found the script book um, at Goodwill. Mm-hmm this past weekend i was so excited because i hadn't read it i just went to the show mm-hmm. blind but it was it was great that's way cool but uh i just cracked open this book on um japanese mythology and um and folk tales i, I read this first tale about the the creation of the world and it was so fascinating i'm like oh how do i apply this in like my world building efforts for future fantasy books this is really cool um so that's that, I kind of get into that kind of stuff. I love creation myths personally. Um, that was one of like the first short stories that I had written back in college. I did the creation of stars. Ooh, that's cool. And so every time I might go back to that one, I don't know for sure, but um, every time that I hear a creation myth, I'm like so interested in it and like how those people thought way back when, like how they explained unnatural things. Mm-hmm. And, I love that. My fantasy trilogy, the Wevelian Chronicles, definitely has some like creation myth stuff going on in the first book because it's like Christian fantasy. It's like if Aragon and um, Chronicles of Narnia had a baby. Um, it's got like some of that like symbolism in there, but it is a fantasy book, you know. Um, but yeah, there mm-hmm. is. It's illustrated at the beginning of like how the world was created and how the sacred dragon kind of chose. Um, righteous souls to be called as kings and queens to help prevent um corruption in some leaders but sometimes it doesn't really work the way it's supposed to so there's a little bit of that going on in there that's awesome yeah i haven't read yours yet i have it because when i met you in salt lake um and you were sold out of the second two i literally ordered them like as soon as i left oh i'm so glad i I, did you get a low price on them because i saw (laughs) that they were on sale for like pretty low yeah, they were like five bucks Heck a piece. Yeah, do that. So I I got all three. I got the first one from you, ordered the second two. They were at my house by the time I got home. I'm so glad. Um 
But yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to reading that. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I mean, Foreordained is, it feels like a really great starter fantasy. Like if you're 13, 14 years old, like just starting to get into the fantasy genre, but you don't want to be like inundated with tons of world building and names you have to keep track of, like Foreordained is a perfect like segue fantasy into that. But then you read um, Purged and Awakened, and then the stakes are just raised even higher. And it gets like so much better and it gets real and um, serious questions are brought up and um, people you love are killed or altered forever. It gets it's really good. Yeah. But I mean, when I started writing Foreordained, I was 15 years old. So I think I definitely was at that stage. Yeah, I I started really young. And thankfully, like I've had some editors in recent years who have really helped me clean up the story to make it feel like it wasn't totally written by a 15 year old. <laughs> um, and some people love it. It's it's a great book, but you could definitely tell like I hadn't like matured as a serious fantasy author yet. You know, that's super interesting that you started. So young. yeah, it was uh, what happened was um, I used to be like really strict practicing LDS Mormon, like not so much anymore. Like I'm still kind of a member. But anyway, that gets into my personal feelings about you know how the church is run and whatever but there was yeah there's there's a thing that we would do in utah called seminary um they actually do this around the country but anyway um i was in my seminary class where we usually study the scriptures and our teacher showed us this video about this prince that was kidnapped by these group of bandits and the bandits tried to subject him to like riotous living with like greed and women and gluttony whatever and the prince just wasn't having it and finally they were like bro we've given you all these pleasures like why will you not submit and he said to them because one day i meant to be king and i thought that was such an interesting concept of like what if you had to be a righteous person like what if you had to be a morally upright person to wield that kind of power like how would that work and i thought it would be like a cool idea for a story and i figured you know what i'm just gonna write it because i had already written short stories and things for my friends. And it just felt time to tackle a novel. I'm just going to try writing a novel. So that's what developed into foreordained. You know, you got this fantasy world where a dragon God foreordains righteous spirits before they're born to serve as Kings or Queens eventually in mortality. And they have a year of decision where they're like tested for the throne and they get to make their final decision on if they feel like they're ready for it or not. Um, but in foreordained, it's kind of serious because the current king wasn't foreordained, but he usurped the throne um, through treachery and intrigue. And, you know, Jason, the main character, kind of feels like, well, I have to take my spot at the throne or the kingdom will continue to suffer, but I don't want to. So he's kind of struggling with this internal conflict as well as this external conflict of what will happen if I don't. So I just dumped a lot on you, but there you go. You, you, there you have it. No, that that's I love that story. First of all, um, you moved your book up on my TBR <laughs> just by telling me. Thank that. you. That's such an honor. Um, it was already pretty high, but it just moved up. I'm pretty sure I'm going to start it like right after bookshops. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Um, and the fact that you those are some pretty advanced, not advanced, but complicated themes that you're writing at a young age as well yeah i mean so i I guess so i think i was a little bit more mature of a writer as a 15 year old but still i mean it for a for a teenager writing this book it's a kick-ass book like if you read this and been like oh like a 15 year old 
wrote this like a senior in high school finished it you know like that's that's pretty amazing but i'm gratefully i did have the help of some great um some editors in recent years that really helped me clean it up and you know make it feel like a professional book um so you came in the right time of diving into the webley and chronicles did you publish it when you were younger and then republish it or is this your first time publishing oh, I it i published it 9 years ago almost 10 years ago it was I had gotten home from my LDS mission. I worked on revising it for about a year, kind of like touching up the story and the writing. And I was thinking about publishing where I would send it off to, kind of looking at tra or, uh, some traditional publishers. But I was at a school function and I mentioned somehow that I was writing a book. And this lady that I was talking to mentioned, oh, Amazon self-publishing is starting to become a serious thing. You should look into that. So I did, and I figured, well, why don't I self-publish this instead of shop it around at publishers for years and hoping to get some kind of feedback? So I went with self-publishing, but at the time, I was far too poor to afford an editor, and I was 22, 23 years old. So it's, I sent it out there, but it was a refined product. Um, and honestly, it stayed that way for many years. I ended up doing my own revision after like Purged and Awakened were complete. And I figured, you know, if this is the first book in a trilogy, it really needs to be tight if people are going to get interested in the other two books. So I went through and did a revision of it where I deleted like 6,000 words. You know, I, I got rid of a good, good, good chunk. But then um, I had an editor friend named Spencer Merrill, um, who is really good at what he does. And he said, hey, I'd be willing to give you a friend discount if you need, you know, someone to touch up Foreordained and, you know, some of your other books. And I said, sure. So I sent Foreordained his way and he deleted 17,000 words. Just really cut it down. To, yeah, wow. really cut it down to size. But it was a little bit of a blow to my ego. But as I read his touch ups, I was like, "Ugh, he did make this a much tighter book. Um, and through that edit, I also got to like touch up a few things in the story that I felt like just needed a little bit of more polish. And uh, at this point, I'm like, I'm never touching this again. Um, this is the final edition, final publication. Final, final. <laughs> yeah, final, final. Um, unless, well, there's that gets into ISBN stuff, but the story will stay exactly the same. But yeah, what we have now for Foreordained, that's how it's going to stay for good. How did you go from writing novels to now you have two collections of short stories and poems you know um what i wanted to do was i wanted to write a short work that i could give to people for free you know to attract them to sign up for my newsletter uh, or follow me on social media or whatever so i wrote i'm sorry here's a plasma rifle a collection of short stories poems and pastry recipes as a way to you know, entice people and get them interested in my work, you know, kind of serve as a sampler of the kind of stuff they can expect from me if they want to read my other works. Um, and in the process, I learned that I really enjoyed writing short stories. Like I didn't think that I would, but I got really into it. And poems I've always kind of enjoyed writing just because even during my teen years, I was really into music and I was writing music and playing guitar and doing band things. Um, so it's really similar, you know, just poetry and songwriting, very similar. Um, and you know, through doing plasma rifle, I, I just discovered, I really liked it. So I just decided I'm going to write more collections as the years go on. I'm going to, every year I'm going to try to write a novel and a collection and get those both published. Um, 
and yeah, this this new collection that just got released last week, Love Letters to a House on Fire, um, it's stories, poems, and ransom notes. It's really some of my best work. And my editor, Spencer, said, yeah, this is some of the best stuff you've ever put out. Um, the stories are funny and they're sad and they have meaningful things to say about the world that we live in. Um, the poems are really vulnerable. They deal with a lot of the thoughts and feelings I have about love and life and mental health and faith. And then the the ransom notes kind of spell out this story of a botched kidnapping that turns into a family blood feud. And it's kind of ridiculous, but it's fun. Um, it was a really, really fun thing to write. But yeah, I mean, it's just, that's how I discovered I kind of loved writing collections. It was just through writing that free book and a good time with it that I knew I wanted to do more just like that. I love the titles, yeah, personally. They're fun. So so you go to cons all over the country to sell your wares. I do. That's really, yeah. really cool. So you were in the booth right next to us, like across the aisle. Is that right? The aisle, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um yeah, you're yeah. You guys is no, I was definitely talking to Brian a little more because he was like facing me most of the time. Yeah. So we were like you know, talking across the aisle, but yeah, <laughs> Brian's a really cool guy. I, I mean, that was my first convention ever selling my books, but I mean, he's been around the block and done it so many times. He was really cool to just kind of like try to set me up for success and make sure that he was giving me advice on, um, you know, how to set up the booth and how to talk to people. He's, he's a really good dude. How did you like your first convention? It was fun. I had a really good time meeting people. I think that's what I enjoyed the most is just talking to other nerds with, uh, mutual interests and selling books because I feel like it does give I don't know like if you have a chance to meet the author and talk about their work like I think it does give you a natural a little bit more affection toward the work you know other if you if you'd never heard of Aaron N. Hall before full disclosure I didn't sell as many books as I was hoping um, to break even with like the costs I spent on the booth itself and the promotional materials and the inventory of the books themselves um, but I, I have some book signings and other events lined up in coming months that hopefully I'll get to, you know, get rid of that inventory. But overall, it was a good experience. Like I would definitely consider doing Fanex again um, with the knowledge that I have now. Uh, yeah, it was fun. I liked it. And I mean, yes, I understand like buying the promotional material because you you had a big poster. Yeah, it was massive. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. That that was going to cost you some money, but now you have it for all your book signings exactly. and any other um, like conventions that you do. Exactly. That's why I wanted to make sure that I made a design for that vinyl banner that felt a little bit more evergreen. It didn't just say Fanex Salt Lake, like meet Aaron and Hall on it. Um, but it's, uh, right. you know, it's got the QR code so people can scan and get to my link tree and find all my books and merch and social media, etc., um, but yeah, it's something I'm going to be using at my upcoming book signings and, uh, other events. So it's, it's a good thing to have. I'm like, I really wanted to shop at that convention specifically. There were so many unique vendors that I had walked past that I was like, I could drop so much money. Here. Yeah. I, I ended up kind of like scoping things out early on like Friday and Saturday morning, you know, before the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the con goers were invited to come in. Um, and I did end up buying a few things from one of my favorite local nerd stores that's uh, based out of Provo. Um, but yeah, it's just, I kind of miss that. It, it is awesome kind of being there as a vendor to sell your wares and hang out with other nerds. But also as an attendee, you know, Andy Circus was there and I didn't get to go meet him because I was busy trying to sell my books. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but that would have been cool to kind of just go 
as a attendee and buy some swag and enjoy nerd things. It would have been cool. I definitely have a love-hate relationship with doing conventions mm-hmm. um, because I do want to just go nerd out and meet people and hang out, go shopping. and mm-hmm. But I also love having my booth as well. Yeah. In Emerald City, I went to a couple like writing workshops mm-hmm. and all of the authors that they had there, they were doing like book signings after. And if you went to their book signing, they were handing out arcs of like their upcoming novels. So what? I... I walked to the panel with like two books that I wanted to get signed. I came back from the panel with like 10 books that I didn't pay a penny for. That's amazing. It was absolutely fantastic. I was in reader heaven. That's so cool. (laughs) I'm like, I'm this year. Like when I go back to Emerald city, I'm like, I'm definitely going to the writer workshops again. (laughs) Uh That's so cool. Is this your, your, your job? You just go to different cons all around the country and sell your wares. Yeah. Yeah. That's my full time. And then obviously the podcast that I started, like that's my, my new hobby job, but (laughs) yeah. And I, I love it. I'm my own boss. I'm on my own schedule. I literally, I'm a night person. That's where my creativity strikes the most is in the middle of the night. Uh So I woke up at like 11 today. I stay up till like 4 a.m., which is great for the podcast, too, because I can record in the middle of the night and not have cars driving by or kids playing or, you know, lawnmower (laughs) vacuums. For sure. Um, So it it honestly is the best for me. It's the best for my husband because he works from home, too. So we're we're kind of in our own little like universe at home. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's so cool. You're kind of living the dream right now. I mean, I always get like pride when people are like oh my gosh you make all this you drew all this like and i'm like Uh, yes i did that was me yeah you should be proud and like your stuff is super cool like i remember brian and i were like sitting in our booth kind of like looking at your wares and we were like oh man like look at that that's kind of cool i kind of want to go look at that you know and um i didn't end up buying anything i'm sorry but uh no you're totally fine (laughs) you had you had some cool stuff it was just uh yeah it was you, you got a good thing going yeah, Brian came over and got some stickers for his his um, daughter. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we we kind of like traded a little bit, gave each other some deals. But um, cool. what I think my favorite part of Salt Lake though was that I saw a girl walking around with a shirt that I had made that she had ordered from me online, and she was wearing oh, it there. So and cool. I I stopped her. I'm like, oh my god, that's my shirt! And she like looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, no, I physically handmade your shirt. <laughs> mm-hmm. How was her reaction after that? Was she like, oh, yeah, cool. Oh, after that, yeah, weird? after that, she was, like, totally excited. She's like, oh, really, blah, blah, blah. But mm. just seeing, like, something that I physically made, like, out in the wild, it was amazing. <laughs> that's so cool. I, that's, this, I, I strive for, uh, like, something like that one day where someone comes up to my booth and already has a copy of my book and they just want me to sign it. Like, that would be way too cool, you know? Well. If you have a booth at Salt Lake, I will bring the other two that I had to buy on Amazon. <laughs> and I'm going to have you well, sign them. I'll probably be at Fanex like regardless. So even, yeah. I don't know. I'm going to bring up. Me on, <laughs> yeah. Message me on Instagram and be like, hey, this is my booth. Come by. And I'll be like, sweet. And I'll just come say hi. Definitely. Yeah. You had said earlier that like your goal is to write one series of shorts and then one novel a year. So what novel did you release this year? Um, it was my name is Hammerfist Volume Two. 
Okay. Yeah. And that's your your sci-fi, right? Yeah, it's like a superhero comedy. So it's got like those sci-fi elements with a lot of the pseudoscience that's really fun. Um, but it's more like a superhero satire. It's just it was born out of kind of exasperation with this inundation of Marvel content. Um I like I like superheroes as much as the next nerd, but I feel like we've gotten so much of it in the last 15 to 20 years that mm-hmm. I wanted to write a story that was kind of self-aware of the superhero tropes and decided to have fun with it. So it's a it's about this community college graduate named Herman who gets powers from a freak accident and starts fighting crime for a full-time salary. And um, he makes friends and there's crime in the underbelly of city town, the city where he lives. And it's just a lot city of town. It's really, yeah. It's, <laughs> so it's actually called city town. I know. I know. It's so dumb, um, but it's really fun. And uh, the, the first book was a lot of fun. The characters were, were great. People really gravitated to them. Um, but the second book, like the stakes get even higher and, and there's more. Uh, and it's, you know, my editor read it and was like 10 out of 10. I freaking love this book. Um, and then the beta readers really liked it too. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's the book that came out this year, the sequel to Hammer Fist. So, and what are you working on for next year? You know, right now the focus is audiobooks. I, I might put a pause on writing anything new until I've got audiobooks done at least for foreordained and my name is hammerfist volume one because uh, love letters will be done by the end of the next week probably but you know recording a full ninety-four thousand word novel is going to take a much longer time um but i do have an idea for a fantasy satire a fantasy comedy called the legend of uh um and it's I'm going to use it as a chance to affectionately make fun of every major fantasy property I can think of while following the tale of Sir Dashing Jr., who feels like he needs to prove himself because the only reason he got knighted was because they couldn't knight his dad twice, you know? Um, <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of fun to write, and it's kind of been cooking in my brain for a few years. So that's probably the next novel I'm going to work on. I desperately need that. <laughs> no, it's like as soon it's, as possible. <laughs> it's it's loosely it's loosely based off of the D and D adventures that me and my friends had. Um, I played a character named Friar Steve, who was a human cleric with a lazy eye, no chin, and he and a speech impediment that makes it so he yells everything he says. Um, so he had like a negative three charisma modifier. Like you know, <laughs> um, he was really fun, but. Uh, some of my other friends had characters who will come up in the story as like brief one-off characters, but yeah, it, it's just a story about a group of ragtag kind of losers who form a party to go on this adventure because they all kind of in their own fe- in their own way feel like they've got something to prove. So it'll be mostly funny. It'll be a comedy, but it'll have like lots of action, but also lots of heart. Um, it's going to be a really fun right i'm really excited to do it i love that no i love satire Mm -hmm. um so being such a fan of like fantasy novels in general i desperately need a satire fantasy that would be amazing there's there's one chapter i've already thought of where they're gonna come across a village and uh i love brandon sanderson I, I think he's mm-hmm. an awesome guy and I think he's a great writer, but I struggle with a lot of his books because they're really big and 
I find myself struggling to stay like focused on some of his works that are a little bit long. So there's going to be a character in one of the villages named Sandy Brambleton, who has been cursed to write big books and cannot <laughs> help himself from writing big books. And even though he's got all of these fans who love his work, he's like, I just, I can't help myself. There's got to be something wrong. Um, so he sends, he asks this party to help him out with like getting this amulet to help him break the curse to, so he can write something besides big books. So they get the amulet, they end up breaking the curse, but it turns out that Sandy Brambleton wasn't cursed at all. He just thought he was cursed, but he wasn't, he just actually really likes writing big books. Um, <laughs> so that's just a fun thing I'm going to put in there. And uh, hopefully if Brandon ever does read it, it won't hurt his feelings because it's going to be in very good fun. Like I, I really do admire him and I think he's a, an awesome figure in the fantasy community. Tell me more about the experience of recording for Plasma Rifle. Uh, it's like a fantasy story where this guy is like fighting a demon that's uh, like the embodiment of death and destruction. And I tried to do this like Joker Mark Hamill voice for the demon. And doing that for so long made my voice hurt so much. And I'm like, how yeah. do people do this for hours on end, you know? I mean, it sounded good, though. <laughs> Thanks. I, I hope it translates well. I mean... The audiobook is already in a handful of places right now, but it's not on Audible and Spotify yet. It's coming soon. Okay, you'll have to let me know when it's up. Yeah, well, I'll post about it on my social media. Like, you'll see it on Instagram, Facebook, all the places. Definitely. And, uh, yeah, and if you're signed up for my newsletter, like, you'll you'll know there before anyone else. Oh, yeah, I'm going to sign up for that, like, immediately because I want to read your plasma rifle. Oh, yeah. And Plasma Rifle is like 100 pages. It's a quick read and it's just fun. It's delicious. Oh, perfect. I, I want the pastry recipes more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> I Are they so your excited. recipes or did you find them? No. Somewhere? So the recipes actually don't make any sense at all. Because oh. <laughs> when I was originally writing it, I did want to include actual workable pastry recipes. I thought that could be a lot of fun. But recipes that you lift from online blogs that have other content written along with them that gets into like copyright gray area and mm -hmm. i didn't want this food blogger finding out that i included their recipe in my book and come back and sue me in like, in like 10 years time you know so i lifted some recipes off some blogs and like screwed them up so hard to where they're unrecognizable um so now it's become like a funny thing where you read this recipe and it calls for 16 cups of flour and four <laughs> grains of salt and the egg of a basilisk you know <laughs> i love but it i'm a little disappointed fun. i'm not gonna get some tasty pastries after but i'm sorry it's still it's still better that could be a fun youtube video where it's like we it would be i was all... i was just gonna say you should make a video making your recipes <laughs> that could be fun if you were to give advice to new or upcoming authors what would that be um, do it because you love it. I mean, don't plan on writing novels to become filthy freaking rich. Like not all of us can be Brandon Sanderson. Um, shoot for that. Great. Um, if you make it, that's awesome. But write the kind of stuff that you would want to read. Um, we already kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but yeah, you are your first audience when it comes to your work. And if you're not writing something that you enjoy, friggin' do something else, write something else. Um, you know, uh, yeah, you are your first audience, write the kind of book that you would want to read. Okay. Aaron, where can everybody find you? 
Um, you can find me by going to AaronNHall.com. Uh, that's that's the great hub of where to find me on social media, um, where to find my work on Amazon. Um, and I also have a cool little blog that I update occasionally on just stuff that's going on. But uh, yeah, Google me, Aaron N. Hall, not just Aaron Hall, because that's the R&B singer from the 90s, but Aaron N. Hall, and you will find everything you need. And you're having a signing on November 4th in Utah? Yes, I'm having a signing at Marissa's Books and Gifts in Salt Lake City on November 4th. So if you're passing through town, come say hi. I'll give you a free high five um, and I'll compliment your outfit and say how beautiful you are. And yeah, it's a. Come say hi. It'll be awesome. All right. I will let you go. We've been talking a long time, but I really appreciate you hanging out. And I very much enjoyed this. As soon as I read your books, I'm going to have a lot more questions. So we'll have to get back together. Yeah, I'd love that. And I really hope you enjoy them. Um, Yeah, they, they, they were made with love and care. Good. That's my favorite type. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. I hope you have a wonderful day. Good luck with your new job and your audiobooks. And I am very much looking forward to your next book. Hopefully, it's that satire one that I really want in my life. So, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Enjoy your dinner. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day. And yeah, we'll feel free to t- keep in touch anytime. Next time I'm kind of coming through Utah, I'll hit you up as well. We'll go get coffee or something. Yeah, that sounds fun. You do that. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. We'll see ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So I know that this has been a longer episode than normal. And thank you guys for hanging out with me till the very end. But now is the moment that I am very excited for. We are going to pick our November book of the month for the book club discussion. And that book is Daughter of Red Winter by Ed McDonald. This book has been on my TBR for quite a while, and so I'm really excited to finally read it, and especially to read it with you guys and discuss it with you and experience it together. And the cover is just so beautiful, so I couldn't resist it any longer. I have linked the book in my Amazon storefront. Um, It is currently on sale for the audiobook edition, so it's only $5 right now. It's also available as hardcover, paperback, and on Kindle. So plenty of different options. Go ahead and pick up your copy, and we'll get started with this read-along. Next Wednesday, November 1st, we're going to be covering chapters 1 through 9. So I'm so excited. I cannot wait, and we will see you guys next week. Thank you again so much for a wonderful first month of Tea and Tropes. And please, 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 please let me know what I can do different, how I can improve. And we will see you guys next week. Bye.